0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Exodus chapter 20. Today is a milestone It is the final message in our series of the Ten Commandments. And I'd like to read five verses that are at the end of the list of the commandments. We have just four listed on the screen, but we'll read verse number 22 as well. In Exodus 20, verses 18 through 22, God had finished speaking the commands. And then we begin reading in verse number 18 of Exodus chapter 20, and all the people saw the thunderings, and the lightnings, and the noise of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Now last week we completed the exposition of the Ten Commandments, and I don't think that I've done a series in which I have pounded as much on the depravity of man and the failure at holiness, as I've done in this series of sermons. The commandments lend themselves to that type of exposition. A few days ago, I I saw a video of Joel Osteen in a recent appearance that he had with Oprah Winfrey. And he was promoting a new book in which uh, the premise was that people should seek positive affirmations about themselves and that they shouldn't verbalize any type of negative thinking. And so instead, he said they should keep repeating statements like, I am good, I'm healthy, I am beautiful, I am victorious, I am blessed. And so the pastor of the largest church in America stood in a theater with, with Oprah to a packed house that I would assume was somewhere around five to 6,000 people and with millions of more that were watching on television, and with an opportunity to preach the gospel, he said nothing at all about sin. And he said nothing about people being on their way to hell. And with this opportunity to present the gospel to a crowd of Winfreyites who'd never heard anything but a mishmash of nonsense, he had this golden opportunity to tell people their true spiritual condition, but instead... He let them continue their headlong plunge into hell. And so he empowered them with a false gospel to a getting willy Promoter. And he said to them, Affirm yourself. There's no need of repentance. You're good enough the way that you are. No, you are more than good enough. His affirmation should have been repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. An affirmation of sinfulness and of judgment. Well, the commandments were given to show our exceeding sinfulness. Paul said in Romans, the commandments kill us with their condemnation. He spoke several times of helplessness and he spoke of unrighteousness. He said that we have no hope except the righteousness that comes by Jesus Christ. But we also note that Paul said that the commandments are holy and just and good. You would think with something that condemns us and tells us what sinners we are that we would hate the commandments. That we would never want to hear about commandments, but actually those who know Christ love the commandments because this is what drives us to Jesus Christ as the only hope of our salvation. Not once did Paul say, affirm yourself. You are good. You only need to think positive thoughts. Now, I can't teach the commandments without emphasizing, in the highest degree, our failure at holiness. And holiness, the Word of God says, is the only way that we'll see God. Positive thinking for a person who has never trusted in Christ is a death sentence, and it's one that is never going to be pardoned. And now, I would would think that perhaps, having ended the exposition of the Ten Commandments last week, that you might be... Ready to move on. Uh, Our depravity is unarguable. That point has been proved. We do know that Christ is the only answer. And so maybe we should have stopped last week. But I kept staring at this list of 39 sermons. On my computer I see listed 1 through number 39. And I kept looking at that number 39. And I said, I can't end there. And I don't know why the Lord would bring us to 39, because 39 is not a good biblical number. 40 is a good biblical number. Uh, Moses spent three 40-year periods in his life, 40 years in Egypt being trained, 40 years in Midian as a as a uh, uh, fugitive, 40 years with Israel in the wilderness, and then the reign of the flood was 40 days and 40 nights, and in the flood we have the ark of Noah that's a, a picture, a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ and our safety in him. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, and that marriage to Rebecca is emblematic of the church and the Lord's love for his church. Esau, who is typical of the flesh in rebellion against God, was 40 years old when he married Judith. Elijah, one of two prophets that never died, was fed for 40 days in the desert with by, by ravens. Jesus, the Son of God, spent 40 days in the desert, fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before his temptation. And so I looked at all of that and I thought, Who am I to end a series at 39? 39. Uh, 39 signifies a beating, doesn't it? Paul was... Five times beat with 39 lashes. And so you might feel, well, this has really been a beating listening to the Ten Commandments. Um, So here we are. Here we are. We've taken a beating during the sermons. But 40 seems to be a number of fulfillment in Scripture. So I hardly think I can end at number 39. And then don't don't forget this. That Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. So it couldn't be complete until there were the number 40. Now, in these verses that we've read, we see the aftermath of the announcement of the Ten Commandments. At the beginning of the chapter, if you'll look at that again, in verse number 1, it says, And God spake all these words. And then comes the marvelous revelation of the character of God in ten powerful statements. Now, I want you to notice this verse. That is the revelation of God. In the Ten Commandments, we have the revelation of God. And God spake all these words. That's a very short, descriptive phrase. It's very brief. But it set off the most terrifying experience that ever happened to human beings. In the 19th chapter, before the Lord would meet with the people, there was a process of sanctification. Now, I'm not going to take time to read this. You can look back at it if you'd like to in verses 10 through 15. But that tells us that God would not speak to any person until they'd gone through this period of sanctification. God required that because of His holiness. And so God does not permit anyone to come into His presence until they recognize His perfect holiness. The requirement of sanctification takes away Joel Osteen's affirmations And we dare not approach God and use His name unless we first acknowledge we are not good. And we are not healthy. We are not beautiful. We are not victorious. We are vile, wicked sinners. And more important than what we are is what God is. And so here there is a powerful, frightening revelation of God's magnificence on the mountain. His presence was accompanied by fire and smoke and vapors and thunder and lightning. The earthquake, there was this violent shaking beneath their feet. I know many of you are are, are terribly frightened of tornadoes. I've mentioned this before. And and you wonder, how is it that those of us that come from the Midwest or from the Southeast, why aren't we scared to death of tornadoes? They never bothered me. Um, I, I stood... Watched a a tornado from the kitchen window. And uh, for about three miles, a tornado tore a path down the road that's in front of our house. And that didn't really bother me, quite honestly. But then I went through an earthquake. And that was in Napa just a few years ago. And that was a totally different experience. In, in, uh, In Kentucky, there are many towns that have warning sirens. So that if there's a tornado coming, they set off that siren and you have some time to repair. Anybody hear a warning siren for an earthquake? Does that ever happen? No, it doesn't happen. Well, this is, this is what God did. He came to them in these, in these earthquakes and the ground shaking beneath their feet. And God said to them, don't you dare approach this mountain. He said, don't you dare even touch this mountain. In Exodus 19, verse 18, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Verse 21, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. In Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 20 and 21, it, it tells the story and says, They could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with the dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And what is this awesome display of God's power for? Is this, is this overkill? No, it's produced in them the fear of a fiery judgment. And this is an appropriate warning that God is not to be trifled with. God's laws are not to be taken lightly. Every one of them is serious. And if there's a violation of any of God's law, there's terrible punishment. Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And for these past months, almost a year now, you've heard me teach on the commandments, and explain. Sometimes I was harsh with these commandments. Maybe at times you didn't feel very good when you left services. Sometimes there was conviction. But there isn't anything, there isn't anything that compares to the fear of God that was on display in this mountain, in the wilderness of Arabia. Now I want us to make a note that the fearful revelation of God in the law is set against... The righteousness of Christ in salvation. And God wants fear in us first because of His judgment against sin. He wants you to be afraid of Him and He wants you to fear Him, and that sounds like the same thing, but it's not. You should be afraid of Him when you're under God's condemnation. He wants that fear to drive you to a response, He wants you to seek a remedy. And then he takes away being afraid of him as the condemning judge, and he replaces that or changes that into a fear to respect and reverence God as we come to him in repentance and faith. And so the law that thunders from Mount Sinai is to bring you to that response. And if you're not afraid of God at first in his fiery judgment, then you're never going to respect God at the last with his grace. So the revelation of the God leads us then into a second observation of the text, and that is the reaction of the people. How did they react to what they'd seen? Verse number 18, "...and all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off." Now at first, God warned them, "...don't come near the mountain." In chapter 19, verse 21, God told Moses, "...go down, stop the people..." Because if their curiosity brings them too near to this mountain and they touch it, they will die. Curiosity kills cats and Israelites. Did you know that? So once they received the law and heard the thunderous voice of God, there wasn't any danger of them coming close. Oh, instead they scattered. They they moved backwards. They fell backwards in fear of God. Now you see, prior to this... The Israelites had no personal vision of God. They had, no, they had no communion with God. Moses did. Moses talked with God at the burning bush. And then Moses personally worked with God and spoke with Him while going through the plagues that were on Egypt. He was the instrument of God as He raised His arms over the Red Sea and the waters parted. And He interceded with God at the waters of Mara. And He talked with God about manna and quail when when Israel was hungry, and he received instructions from God when God told him to strike the rock at Horeb to receive water. God's power was in Moses as Aaron and Hur held up his arms in the battle of Amalek. Moses was close to God, but the people weren't. They had not spoken with God. In all the years that Israel lived in Egypt for that more than 400 years when they were in Egypt, there was hardly any contact with God on the part of the Israelites. They were not close with God. But now, here is God revealing Himself personally to them, and they learn that curiosity about God is not such a good thing. And every person in the Old Testament that came in contact with God always went away with a sense of doom. We have seen God, therefore we will die. Now imagine at the foot of Mount Sinai, there are more than two million people. Sometimes people are bolder when they're in a crowd. There's a sense of security in a crowd. People will begin to act out. You see this in your newspapers, you see it on television when there are riots in streets that you get a mob together, you get a crowd together, and all of a sudden everyone's emboldened and and there's no longer any fear to do the worst. So they begin to burn things down. They tear things up. Nobody's afraid of the police. Nobody's afraid of anything. There's safety in the crowd. The numbers give you safety. But that didn't happen here. And when they saw the power of God, there is nothing but mass panic. And every individual scattered and ran for his life. And so in a massive wave, they all moved backwards because what they saw was frightening to the bone. And it reminds us of the awesome authority of Jesus Christ when the mob came against Him to take Him in the garden. Whenever Jesus wanted to, He could peel away His flesh to reveal the glory of God as He did in that brilliant light of the transfiguration. And when Jesus wanted, He could speak with the thunderous voice of God, So they would recognize that He is Almighty God. And so we read in His betrayal at the garden in John 18, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon Him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto unto them, I am He. And Judas also, which betrayed Him, stood with them. And as soon as He said unto them, I am He, they went backward and fell to the ground. Can you hear Jesus saying those words, I am He, or I am Jehovah? You're speaking to God. And at the sound of those powerful words, they fell backwards. And there we see God speaking to them from Sinai again. God still thundering with the law. And they could not take Him. They could not take Him without His permission, only until He says, I am ready to go when he says, I'll go with you, that's when Jesus goes and not before. They couldn't stand before him. They dared not try to take him until he was ready to surrender. And friends, that's God. And we need to keep that very straight. Be careful how you approach Jesus. He is God. You know, many of you have heard of the poem, Footprints in the Sand. There's a scene on the beach. Um... A woman writes of a dream in which she's walking along the beach with Jesus. And she looked back, and she could see at times the places where they walked, but she could only see one set of footprints. And she wrote in this poem that those were the times that Jesus carried her through her times of trial. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment. I don't criticize that thought, but I want to warn you, that that is only one very narrow viewpoint of Jesus Christ. That He is Almighty God, and you must be too very careful about being too familiar with Jesus. Now, though we're not afraid of Him because He has delivered us from condemnation, and though we're not afraid of Him because He has reconciled us to the Father, yet there still must be this reverential fear and respect of Jesus Christ. Many people speak of Jesus in the wrong way, and they'll say things like, you know, when we get to heaven, oh, I'm going to sit on Jesus' lap. No, you're not going to sit on Jesus' lap. Jesus is God. He's the one from Sinai. You must respect Him and give Him reverence as you think of His mercy and grace. But there is a difference in the way that people approach God and the way that God wants to be approached. Everyone wants God who is benevolent. They want to see merciful side of God. They want the God who gives them daily provisions when they never even bother to ask or to thank Him for them. And they never want the side of God that meets out judgment because we're sinners. And and as the humble Publican approached God very differently than the proud Pharisee. That's the difference that we see in people today. The Pharisee had no fear to come to God because he thought he was okay. He he was standing in the law. He thought he was worthy to approach God. But the publican knew better. He feared God because of God's law. And he knew that he dared not lift up his eyes to heaven to look in the direction of God. And so he struck his breast in sorrowful repentance and he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And I thought about that. That was one of the first things that came to my mind as I watched that Oprah Osteen video. That there, this crowd stood with fist pumps to the sky and they shouted their affirmation. And with everything that they said, each affirmation grew stronger until finally there was a frenzy of celebration in which people say to the Almighty, God, God, this is who I am. Look at who I am. I'm good enough. And so they came to God's mountain and they touched it. And then they walked all over it. And then they stomped on holy ground without fear. And these are people that will experience the wrath of Almighty God. Their best life is now because hell is the afterlife. Now the people's response feeds into our third observation. And this is the mediation of Moses. Verse number 19, And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Before, we're talking about a people that murmured. These are people that complained against God. And they complained against Moses. And in defiance in their hearts, they said, Moses, if we could speak with God, we'd tell him a thing or two. They got their chance. God spoke with them. How long does it take us to read the Ten Commandments? We read them all, maybe two or three minutes, maybe less than two minutes. They spoke with God, and it was very brief. And when they were done, they said, we've had enough of that, Moses. Would you please speak for us? Moses, we need you. Speak to God for us. We'll listen to you, but please don't let God speak to us anymore. So what did they want? Well, they wanted someone to stand between them and God. They wanted to be shielded from his wrath. Now, Moses was a truly remarkable man. And so do you think when they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to God for us, that Moses said, All right, all right, stand back, watch me do this. Let me take care of this for you. No, he wasn't a fundamental Baptist preacher. Listen to Hebrews twelve twenty one, And so terrible was the sight of that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Moses heard the voice, and he shook in his sandals like all the rest. Can you imagine how much courage it took for Moses to climb that mountain and to go into the fire and the smoke and to speak with God? And he was terrified because he knew God's power. He was terrified because he knows who God is. The people stood back and they said, let Moses do it, let him go. And who's Moses. Not a proud man, not an arrogant man. Of all men, the Bible says he is the meekest. And do you remember what he said when God called him? He said, God, not me. God, I'm too weak. God, I'm, I'm not that assertive. I can't speak very well. And he was a very humble man. And I promise you, when he came down from that mountain with his face shining with the glory of God, he didn't say, would you please stand back and applaud me for my service? Look what I did. Folks, we need a lot less pride and more meekness from our preachers. We need humility in the pulpit. We need the fear to stand in the pulpit and to speak to God. And we dare not approach the pulpit in our strength. We dare not think that preaching here is for our glory and not for the glory of Jesus Christ. And never let us be brazen enough to stand here and steal the glory of Jesus Christ. Moses wasn't proud. He's only a mediator. He stood between God and the people. He was their advocate. Don't let God speak to us directly, Moses. You stand in and speak for us. Now on Sunday nights, we're studying typology. Is it hard for you to guess who Moses stands for? What is the picture that we see here? Well, the picture, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the great mediator who stands between us and God. First Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And why do we need that? Why do we need it? It's simple as this. We can't enter God's presence. We dare not approach God. The law is announced in, in fire and in smoke and in earthquakes and in judgment. There's a thunderous display of indignation and unapproachable holiness. That's what stands in our way before we get to God. So the law is announced to us in fiery judgment, and that forces us to come in another way. This is the way that the law is announced. Fire and smoke and judgment. But on the other hand, how is is grace announced? John said, the law came by Moses, and grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And how did it come? What is the announcement in contrast in contrast to the law. Oh, you know it, don't you? You've been to Christmas celebrations. You've read the Word of God. The contrast is heavenly angels that announce Him. At first, shepherds are rightly fear, afraid when they see the glory of God. But then the angel comes and announces with comforting words, Fear not. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Did the law ever give anybody that kind of comfort? Oh, there's no promise of peace in the law. Not without complete compliance. And no one has ever done that. No one can do it. And so in the law we read, there is a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. But on the other hand, the announcement of grace is peace, goodwill toward men. And Jesus is that peace, and He made that peace by the blood of the cross. He is the mediator of grace in a new covenant, dependent upon His righteousness, not ours. He's the one who satisfied God's law for us, and He is the one who shields us from the wrath of God with His sacrificial grace. The law won't let us have peace with God. You're not going to be able to come to God and say, This is what I am. This is what I do. This is how good I am. These are my self-affirmations. The law will not let you. You can't. The mountain quakes with fire and smoke. And you have no right to come to Him based on the law. You only have the fear of falling into the hands of the living God. And so that mountain reminds us that we must be saved from God. And what is salvation? It's to be saved from God. That is to be saved from His wrath because of our transgression of the law. And that's what Jesus came to do, to save us from that wrath. He came to stand between us and the Father and make peace. And the method of accomplishing that great task is His cross. Colossians one 19 to 19-22, For it pleased the Father, that in Him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they are things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now mark this point well. You will not approach God without Jesus Christ. The world ignores that demand. Remarkably, there are many Christians that do as well. Some years ago, I had, a, I had a Christian friend who was asked to give a public invocation. And there were many people of different religions that were there. They were in attendance. And, and in respect for them, and with no respect for the living God, the prayer went up without an acknowledgement that the only way that we can approach God is through Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus say? You can't come here. You can't come to the Father without me. You can't come in any other name but mine. You have no access but Him. And to come without that mediator is to come without any shielding from God's wrath. That's to come bare naked, exposed, defenseless. You have no right to do it. You have no invitation to do it. Instead, as we see in our text, you are commanded to stay away from Him. Don't you dare come here. Don't you dare touch the holy mountain. You need to remember that when you're in trouble. Remember it when you kneel in your bed at night. Remember that when God is your last ditch effort and you have no place else to go, no help but God, you still can't come to Him without faith in Jesus Christ. On our Wednesday night prayer page, we have many, many names. There are people that ask us to put their names there people that are lost, and they say, will you pray for me? And do you know that is a very good idea, to ask a sanctified believer to pray for you because if you're lost without Jesus Christ and refuse to come to Him, you dare not pray for yourself. Do you understand? If you're unwilling to put your faith in Christ, you dare not talk to God. You must come in repentance and faith. That's the only way that God will hear you. Faith in the blood of of the cross is the only way that you can make peace with God. Until then, you don't touch His holy mountain. The law is not going to let you. So Moses is the mediator. He knew that he should be afraid, and so he trembled. But he accepted that role of mediator. He must intercede for them. And so in verse number 20, he says to them, God is come to prove you. God has come to, in other words, test you that his fear may be for your faces, that ye sin not. Now, I'm going to tell you, folks, that in 39 sermons on the Ten Commandments, you know that what Moses said to them is impossible for them to fill. Not one of them could do this. God has come to test you and to prove you that you sin not, and they could not do it. Nobody could do it. Not Moses, not Aaron, not Joshua, not Caleb. Before they're through wandering in the wilderness, Moses himself would strike the rock a second time, and his disobedience shut him out of the promised land. The priests could not keep the law. Nadab and Abihu were consumed for offering strange fire. None of the people could keep the law. They sent out twelve spies, and they said, Spy out the land, but those spies came back, ten of them with an evil report. We cannot take the land. They ignored the power of God in the mountain, and they said, He's not able And God was not happy with that unbelief. And so that entire generation of Sinai died in the wilderness without setting one foot in the promised land that God said they would have. Now, or then, 39 years later, Moses retold, or 38 years later, Moses retold the story of this uh, smoke and fire on the mountain. He tells it to a new generation. And what he says to them, You had better not repeat the sins of your fathers. If you do, you're not getting into that land. God will not give it to you. But here, we're just in chapter 20 in Exodus. And now we see the entrance exam. This is your entrance exam. This is how you get into the land. This is the immediate aftermath of the law delivered. And God says, I'm going to test your obedience. And how did that go for them? Disastrous. In fact, the law wouldn't take them into Canaan. And folks, I'm going to tell you, the law will not take you into heaven. Forget about going that way, but that's the way most people want to go. Let, let's try this. Let's try to be good. Let's try to obey things. Let's, let's see if we can get to heaven that way. And I'll tell you, it won't turn out any better for you than it did for Israel. So in 39 sermons, I beat you up with the lashes of that lesson. And so we learn from Paul that the law is the ministration of death. There's no life in it. You can be as positive as you want to be with your self-affirmations. There is no life in the law. It's a fool who seeks God on that perilous route. Now, this is a powerful story that sets us up for a stark reality. So what are we to learn from it? Well, we close our series on the Ten Commandments with this thought. The interpretation for us. What do we learn from the law of God? Well, in the exposition of the commandments, my closing remarks almost always on every commandment was about helplessness. It, it, the, the law is too powerful, the scene's too powerful, it's overwhelming. We stand before a holy God as they did with nothing that we can plead before him but our guilt. Is there any person here who doesn't understand? That there is a God and He must be satisfied for the wrong that we have done. Many people deny that, but Romans one says that, and it's true. It's unavoidable. Several years ago, my wife and I visited the ancient city of Maya uh, of the Maya, the Mayan city of uh, Chichen in the Yucatan Peninsula, and in the in the center of that center of that, that city, under the shadow of this huge pyramid that was built to worship their lifeless God, gods, there's a field. There, there's, a, there's a stadium there that looks like a soccer field. Only they had more sense than to play soccer, so they weren't doing that. So here's a, a field with a, that's a place for games, but these are games like you've never seen before. These are games that are played to the bloodlust of their gods. Human lives were taken on these fields in their games as they played to satisfy the amusement of their gods. You see, all people, it doesn't make any difference, civilized or uncivilized, they know there is a God. And they know that something is owed to God. The Bible is the revelation of the one true living God, and He is the real God that must be satisfied for all the wrongs that we have done. But our God's not satisfied with the methods of ancient Mayans. And He's not satisfied with sacrifices of ancient cultures as the Israelites encountered. Neither is He satisfied with all the religions of the world today that try to do all the good things that they do to be righteous. Those gods aren't real. Those gods that they worship were never kind or benevolent. Their sacrifices. We're not appreciation of gifts from their gods, but their payback. These are payback for the things that they receive. Now, let me tell you the difference between our God and theirs. First, our God is real. Now, that's the main thing. He is real. Secondly, He never asks us to pay Him back. And you know why God said, you you don't have to pay me back? Because you don't have anything He wants. You don't have anything to offer Him. Nothing you have is worth offering God. Thirdly, God is a God of grace. And grace cannot exist quid pro quo. God gave the law knowing that in our fallen state we could not keep it. But that didn't lessen the obligation to do it. We cannot keep it, but we still have an obligation to keep it. God's a God of justice. There anything that God did that caused our inability. Some say that God will not command what we cannot do. That's an argument against total depravity. That's an argument against total inability. So they say, well, we must be able to repent and believe because God will not command what we can't do. But here, we've just read the best evidence of all that God commands what we can't do. You can't keep the commandments. You see, in these verses, Moses said, God came to test you that you don't sin. And they found out We can't stop sinning. So the graciousness of God says that since we can't solve the problem of sin, God will take care of that problem of inability Himself. I do not understand why anybody, any preacher, would deny total inability because there's nothing that acclaims the glory of God like the graciousness of God to overcome our inability. That's the issue. God will judge us, and He's going to judge every person On one of two bases, either it's going to be by the law, or it will be by its gospel. We've just seen a graphic illustration of what happens when we're judged by the law. We fear, because one of these days, the books will be opened, and every person will be judged out of the record of the law. Thirty-nine sermons, I've told you what to expect, what verdict to expect on that basis. But on the other hand, there's the basis of the gospel. The gospel is the method of mediation. The gospel is about a mediator who goes in your place before God and he stands to plead before God so that you don't have to speak to the righteous judge on your own as a condemned sinner. So the mediator satisfies God's judgment against you. The gospel is that he lived, that he was crucified, he died, he was buried, he rose again. And what does it say? For what? Why did he do that? It says, for your justification. The penalty of your sins was paid at the cross. He paid for sins on the cross and he took what he purchased and took it into his tomb and left it there and then wiped the slate of sins against you squeaky clean. Now remarkably, that mediator is also your judge. You're going to stand before the one who did this for you and he will open the books and he will judge. Your name is there, as a believer in Jesus Christ, at this judgment, your name is there, and every violation of God's commandments, by every one of them, is written, paid in full. Can I, can I take you to this last saying of the cross? John 19, verse 30, When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. Tetelescii. That word means a payment of a debt, satisfaction of a debt. And so the uh, judge will open the books and he'll say, Not guilty. On count number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Not guilty. On count number two, thou shalt not make a graven image. Not guilty. On count three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Not guilty. On count four, thou shalt not forget the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Not guilty. On count five, thou shalt not disrespect thy father and thy mother. Not guilty. On count six, thou shalt not kill. Not guilty. Count seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Not guilty. On count eight, thou shalt not steal. Not guilty. On count nine, thou shalt not lie. Not guilty. On count ten, thou shalt not covet. Not guilty. How is that possible? How is that possible? Sitting there in the pew, you got to think, how is that possible? You know who you are. I know who I am. How is that possible? I'm going to tell you how it's possible because... Because he is not reading the account of your life. He's reading the account of Jesus Christ. He reads the account of his life and his righteousness. He is always not guilty. And that's why you stand before God justified. His righteousness is your righteousness. And on that basis and that alone, you stand before God and you can touch his holy mountain. Without him... You come to the mountain and touch it, and you will die. Now, if you would, as we close today, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I want us to read about a different mountain and a different result. This is the mountain for everyone who trusts Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, and in verse number 18. Hebrews 12, verse 18. First is the account of the mountain that we've just read about in Exodus. Hebrews 12, verse 18. 18, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor into blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice that they that heard entreated, that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mount, then it shall be stoned or thrust through with the dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceeding fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Which mountain do you want to visit? Which mountain do you want to go to? Do you want to go to Sinai or do you want to go to Zion? Anybody have an argument about this? Would you like to debate it? Stay away from the covenant of the law and go to the mediation of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The first one is the covenant of death. And that's the one that says, I'm good, I'm healthy, I'm strong enough to come on my own. That's the covenant of death. The covenant of life is... Christ is good, Christ is healthy, Christ is righteous, Christ is omnipotent, Christ is victorious. Which of those is better? Paul nails it down in 2 Corinthians. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, we've never said there wasn't anything good about the law. It's just and holy and good. But what does he say? If the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel cannot steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. The law from Mount Sinai was good, and it was glorious because God gave it. God doesn't give bad things. God gave it. But the grace of Zion exceeds in glory. Go to that mountain. Touch that mountain. And choose life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We come to you today, thanking you for this series that we've had in the Ten Commandments, Lord. How how glorious is the is the explanation, the learning of it, knowing what the law means, and how we as Christians that the law is a tremendous part of our life. We it, we we find holiness and obedience to commandments exactly as, as it says in the, well, John said in in his in his gospel, and also in. In First John and other places, Peter and Paul all writing about this. The law is glorious. It's good. It's just. It's holy. But it never saved anybody. And that's why the grace of Jesus Christ is much rather glorious. He's the mediator of a new covenant whereby we come to him not by any work that we have done, but based solely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ who did it all for us. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, Father, that we can't, don't pay anything back because we can't pay anything back. We praise you for Jesus Christ who did it all. Speak to someone's heart today, Lord. May the message impress someone to repent of sins, turn in faith to Jesus Christ. The glorious gospel is the only thing that will save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this presentation